Welcome to Real Vision. I'm Jim Bianco, and I have the great pleasure of talking to Sean LaPel of FinTech Collective. We're going to go down the rabbit hole of a couple of TradFi guys that have discovered DeFi and crypto and how we got there and what we think of it. So, Sean, welcome. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's start with the basics. Um, tell us about your background and tell us uh, where you came from and how you wound up at uh, FinTech Collective. Absolutely. So uh, just by way of background, Sean Pell, partner at FinTech Collective. We're an early stage venture capital firm based out of where I'm sitting right now in New York City. Uh, I've been heading up our digital asset effort since 2016. Um, so to take you back into my brief professional history, I started my career in institutional finance at Credit Suisse. Uh, and during that time, I covered financial services and technology companies as an investment banker. Um, I had the pleasure of starting my career right into the financial crisis of 2018, 2008. Uh, so I had a front row seat of like seeing the pitfalls of a financial system that was not built from first principles. Uh, I'll never forget that uh, first uh, Christmas uh, party where half my analyst class was laid off, made for a really interesting experience. Um, and then just sort of running around the, the trading desk, just figure out like what our exposure was to Lehman at the time, because no one knew. Um, and then, you know, on the other side of that, just seeing the avalanche of sort of regulations uh, that sort of the bank was facing and just, you know, former business lines that used to be profitable that didn't, you know, a you know more regulated environment. We're, we're no longer so. Uh, and at the time, as mentioned, I was covering technology companies. So I had the juxtaposition of seeing the advent of sort of mobile and the cloud, and just what that technology innovation was unleashing, uh, and kind of had a realization kind of early in my investment banking career that uh, unless I want to be on the wrong side of history, it probably made sense to move over into the technology field. But um, the probably more uh, interesting background is that uh, I spent various periods of my 20s as a ranked online poker player. Um, and I started a few adjacent businesses to that, one of which actually used a unique set of data analytics to rank uh, and, and back other poker players. So little known fact, but most poker players are actually backed by other poker players. Uh, so we were kind of basically crowdfunding for, for poker players. And uh, at the time in 2011, 12, uh, you guessed it, uh, poker sites were using Bitcoin to cash you off and we were sending players sort of their, their funds in Bitcoin. Um, so really that was the genesis of my interest in, in, in sort of cryptocurrency. And I like to think of online poker as sort of like the first original metaverse. Uh, now that term gets thrown around a lot, but like it was the first sort of community uh, uh, where like people were sitting anonymous, you kind of knew who their avatar was, but you didn't know who they might be in real life. Um, and then for the last six years, I spent my time here at FinTech Collective, um, just getting schooled in the art of company building and institutional investing. Um, so really it's the confluence of those three things that sort of led me down sort of the, the crypto rabbit hole and DeFi specifically is one, this background in institutional finance, uh, two, sort of this poker background and uh, understanding the metaverse and game theory optimization. And third is just the, the last uh, six years and sort of company building and sort of being part of an institutional VC. Yeah, it's very interesting you bring up uh, about the online poker. I do think of that, too, as kind of like a prehistoric version of what we were going on. And there's a lot of parallels to, you know, Neteller and maybe Coinbase and, uh, or some of the DeFi applications, too, that we could uh, get into as well. This is largely going to be to a crypto audience. And we're talking to a VC fund about investing in DeFi. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that think, what does VC bring when you can have fair launch of tokens and everything? So talk to me a little bit about that. Um, how, what 
advantages and what skill sets and um, can a VC fund bring to a, a DeFi protocol that maybe that others can't? It's it's a really fair question, Jim, because obviously we've seen a number of fair launches like Yearn and some success around those. I would say, you know, it, it really depends on the entrepreneur. Like we've worked with tons of talented entrepreneurs in the DeFi and Web3.0 space that do want institutional capital and thought partners and understand sort of the scale and sophistication of what that could bring. Uh, and having said that, not necessarily, not necessary. It's uh, uh, not necessary that all projects obviously get institutional backing, uh, but there are a number of sort of benefits that I, I think we sort of bring to the table. But you know, I, I second the notion that traditional, like a traditional venture capital model within crypto, is probably not going to work. <laughs> and it's likely, well, you've seen sort of this emergence of new fund managers, whether that's you know us, whether that's Polychain, ACC Crypto, uh, Parify. Um, and I think it's because like the reality is this new paradigm are quite different. Um, like the space is much more technical. It's being driven by development heavy teams. Um, the code is open source. So this idea of like what builds durability and defensibility around a business model doesn't necessarily translate from sort of traditional VC where the tech stack is proprietary and you're sort of creating your API and someone's you know licensing and paying you for it. Um, so like we, we do think like a sort of what succeeds here will be architected a bit differently than in the traditional world. Um, and we think about bringing value to the portfolio across this new fund, across a bunch of different dimensions, one of which I'd say is, um, you know, the upgrades to these sort of what I'll call decentralized financial networks never really stop. Um, so bringing sort of a, a deep fundamental research lens and then just being active in governance means a lot, right? So like as institutional investors, we don't just hold our tokens. Uh, we're, we're obviously, you know, putting proposals forward. We're voting on the future of the the, the sort of protocol and 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 what we think's work, what we think works and what doesn't. Um, and then just when we think about just, you know, bringing technical capabilities, like we employ uh, a smart contract engineer on the team that goes quite deep. Um, so we think about like, you know, I don't like to use the phrase that we're building a full stack consulting arm because that's really not what we're in the business of doing. But we like to be really impactful across dimensions of like governance, uh, liquidity mining, bringing some technical capabilities by having some of the team that could dig underneath the hood and and sort of help along that that dimension. And then just like when you think about these communities, like because this is what they are, it's sort of communities sovereign to the Internet. Um, like, how do we think about marketing and reaching uh, sort of a broad scale of people and sort of moving, you know, people forward in in a in a um, uh, a holistic direction? And you know, we have a lot of experience doing that and sort of seeding early protocols across uh, decentralized finance. So, um, and then you know, the liquidity mining thing is really actually really interesting, right? Like, the lifeblood of these networks in DeFi really is sort of liquidity at the earliest stages. It's like bootstrapping network effects and having an institutional partner that could bring not just equity capital or being able to buy your token, but actually bringing uh, assets or TVL into the protocol is really important at the earliest stages because like you got to get the flywheel going and anyone who could help sort of amplify the, the messaging and, and, and do that is, is going to be uh, differential for, for these uh, new age uh, Web3.0 companies. It's interesting you bring that up because in a lot of the VCs or TradFi people that I've talked to in this space really like to use the phrase picks and shovels. I want to go to the picks and shovels and they're always focused on the chart or chain link or something like that. But you talked about a much wider net 
than just talking about you know some of the uh, the, the the direct applications that you can have uh, on it. So talk to us a little bit about what it is that you're looking for in a protocol or in a project that would uh, interest you in uh, you know going to the next step and continuing to uh, investigate it as a possible investment opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, I'll say this: just given sort of the nature of fintech collective, like we're we're a global asset manager, and we've sort of cut our teeth as early stage investors, so we kind of you know invest at the early stages. So I will say, a hundred percent, sort of the founding team is the most paramount you know uh, piece to that puzzle to us. Like we look quite deeply at sort of the skill set of of the founders and sort of what drives them and. Everything in DeFi obviously is highly ethos driven as well. Um, so we think about things that sort of stay true to the ethos of transparency, openness, programmability, um, and composability, right? So uh, founders that sort of exhibit those characteristics, but just have like a big, you know, big global vision, right? That's the other thing is, you know, what we're building here is, you know, financial networks that are sovereign to the internet and global by, by nature. So having a global vision is, is really important uh, when we look at sort of the protocols that we invest in. And then just thinking about sort of like, I like to sort of zoom out and think about, you know, DeFi specifically and like what use cases are, are there and like sort of what, what's getting traction for us to look to invest in. And what I think is really interesting, if you kind of zoom out and look at the, at the crypto market cap, like where are we sitting today at 1.2 trillion? If you look at the top 10 protocols that have some semblance of product market fit, um, that's about 20 billion in total network valuation or you know, market capitalization, whatever you want to call it within the space. And like, where, where, like, where are we seeing some early signs of, of green shoots and where things are having lasting effects? I'd really say it's across four dimensions that we look at and we look at as actionable right now. So the first uh, is kind of decentralized exchanges. So Uniswap sort of leading that as sort of the flag bearer. But um, when we think about sort of the broader trading of, you know, digital first assets, being able to do it in an open custodial matter where, you know, anyone could add a, you know, a, a pair onto Uniswap, you could trade against it. There's no order book for a user, all that sort of complexity is abstracted. And I just move from one token to the other. Like that is a fundamentally game changing experience and, you know, bears out in the data, right? Like if you look at some days, you know, Uniswap trades north of a billion dollars, which may actually supplant Coinbase on a variety of days. So like DEXs are certainly getting a ton of traction. Um, the second swim lane that we think a lot about um, that has traction is sort of the borrowing lending space. So whether that's, you know, Aave, Compound, Maker, um, just, you know, non-custodial repo markets, like we're actually using the power of the technology where I actually don't have to, you know, as we mentioned, like starting my career in institutional finance, I don't have to hand my collateral over to someone else to borrow another digital asset. Um, so really, like we, we think about that as foundationally important to, to DeFi and sort of the lifeblood. If you think about repo markets across traditional markets, they measure in the trillions and sort of replatforming them using uh, smart contracts is a fundamentally better architecture to do that. Um, so we look at that and sort of the 10 billion plus TVL that's across those protocols. Um, the third space that we look a lot at and sort of have an active thesis in is sort of the synthetic space. So we're the earliest backers of a protocol called Universal Market Access, uh, which is infrastructure for developers to, to develop synthetics. Um, and we think about a lot about just, you know, this idea of real-time margining uh, that UMA does and just a better sort of Oracle system to sort of adjudicate financial contracts. Like financial contracts that exist today are very specific to the geography you're in. When we think about a financial contracting system that could span sort of global 
globally. Uh, we think about UMA as a, an important infrastructure, and you know, synthetics are certainly getting a lot of traction and volume. And and the fourth thing, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot more about, because it's top of mind, uh, you know, not just for us in DeFi, but on the regulators' mind, is, is this idea of stable coins and sort of replatforming the way that payments works. And you know, today we've got over 100 billion dollars uh, across you know stable coins or the stablecoin ecosystem. Of, a variety of you know centralized stable coins like USDC and and Tether and decentralized stable coins like like MakerDAO, um, but that's certainly an area that's getting traction that we we spend a lot of time thinking about. So so hopefully that answers the question of not just what we're looking for from a sort of team perspective, but just some of the areas of interest to us at sort of the fund level. And and you're exactly right. Like we think you know uh, a successful fund in this space is quite nimble and is going towards where the areas and pockets of opportunities are. So, you know, we do invest in equity and a lot of that has to do with sort of life cycle and stage. At the early stage, you know, these things look like traditional equity structures before anything's built and it's just a white paper. Eventually you get to the SAFT, you know, a simple agreement for future token launch uh, and eventually you get to the public token market um, when sort of, you know, these things reach some measure of scale. And we want to be able to invest, you know, across the full spectrum. So the aperture is really wide from the fund level. Wherever we see 15 plus X opportunities, we want to be there. So now you have both, as I understand it, you have the um, uh, FinTech Collective FinTech Fund and the DeFi Fund, or the DeFi Fund is part of the uh, FinTech Fund. Explain those that, that relationship to us and what is and how your DeFi Fund is structured or what people should expect out of a traditional VC DeFi fund or yours in as an example. Um, you know, just kind of the broad strokes here to give uh, listeners an idea of how this stuff would uh, work and, and be set up. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really great question. So let me un unpack it a little bit to sort of help with just the understanding of uh, the viewers and then even potentially uh, some of the companies we may be looking to invest in. So um, just starting at the highest level, just like what well, what is FinTech Collective? So FinTech Collective, we're a global venture capital firm. We're, we're based out of New York City. And sort of the tagline for us is sort of helping entrepreneurs who are rewiring the way money moves through the world. Um, so sitting today, we've got over 500 million of regulatory assets under management and 52 portfolio companies. As you guessed it from sort of the name on the cover, uh, we're myopically focused on this opportunity in financial services tech. So we only do things that have a financial services product uh, use case. Uh, the second big differentiator for us to fund is everyone on the team has spent time as entrepreneurs. The firm itself was started in 2012 by two serial fintech entrepreneurs who've known each other for 21 years now named Brooks Gibbons and Garrett Jones. They've had four successful exits across capital markets tech, payments, enterprise AI, uh, and then sort of our classic operators that have turned themselves into VCs as they kind of hit their 40s. And the last thing I would say is that the firm itself is has been architected as global and institutional from day one. Um, so we don't think about this idea of fintech or DeFi emanating out of Silicon Valley alone, like we've seen other technology trends. We think about these globally distributed epicenters of activity, New York being one, Sao Paulo, Brazil, London, Berlin, Singapore. Um, uh, so the firm really has invested, you know, we've got eight companies in Latin America, five, five in Europe, um, and the, the capital is institutional in nature. So pension fund money, sovereign fund money, fund to fund money, 
a handful of corporates that are quite thoughtful and are, are sort of accretive to what we're trying to build. So that's sort of at the, at the highest level. That's what Fintech Collective is. It's a, it's a sector-focused venture capital firm that's global in nature. Um, and how do we get in this? How do we get involved in crypto as a fund away from my background? And what does it relate to DeFi? And, 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 and how do we sort of tie the pieces together? Um, so I think it probably makes sense before I get into like what the fund is, tell you like the thesis around DeFi for us and how we wound up here. But the TLDR is like, we're not new to the space. Like in our, in our first fund, we invested in a business called Tradeblock. And this is back in 2000, 2013. And what Tradeblock was really doing was early in thinking about the institutionalization of the asset class and providing like a unique set of data and analytics uh, and, and a trading platform for that. Um, so we were already involved in investing in the space back in 2013 um, out of our first fund. Uh, and sort of the thesis that drives this DeFi fund, uh, I can unpack a little bit, but, you know, foundationally what we think is happening is we think we're in this multi-decade transition from what I'll call industrial finance into this world of network-based finance. And what we think is actually happening is every area of consumer enterprise and institutional finance is basically being re-platformed on a public permissionless blockchain. Um, it makes things more transparent, open, programmable, trust minimized. But when we talk about DeFi, what I'm really talking about is basically a new architecture for building money and applications. Um, and, you know, it's basically the financial services products that you and I have grown up and known, but being built without intermediaries, right? So we think at the end of the day, it results in better, faster, cheaper finance in developed markets. And it's things like potentially being your own bank in developed markets, which is something that can't exist really without DeFi. We think about innovation in capital markets. So this idea of tokenization of everything, only a concept once again, that could exist in DeFi. And then, you know, we talk about this a lot and Jim, you and I discussed it too, is just this idea of in developing markets where 35% of the world lives somewhere where inflation exceeds 10% or under authoritarian regime, like DeFi is definitely a much better backbone and a potential store of value for, for these individuals and small business who, small business who are struggling. So uh, the DeFi fund itself, think about it as it's, it's a $50 million fund that's, you know, sits adjacent to and under sort of the parent. Uh, it's thematic and fundamental driven, all we do is track and invest in DeFi. Um, as I mentioned, that could be across equity, public tokens, SAFs, a few different flavors. Uh, so it's a bit of a tweak on your traditional private venture approach, um, just being optimized for the, the current paradigm of Web 3.0 investing. So you kind of hinted at this, and I want to uh, drill down a little bit more on it. Um, what is the problem in uh, the traditional financial services that we think or you think needs to be disrupted. When I tweet about this, a bunch of what I call no coiners always come back to me. I always talk about the payment rails are not working right. The unbanked are really getting the rind of the deal with remittances. And they go, well, what are you talking about? I can send you money on Venmo in yep. five seconds. And I was like, yes, because you're not unbanked and you've met minimum requirements at the bank uh, and you've got money and you can get this service as an add-on. So Talk to us about what you think is the problem in TradFi or in the current financial system that's not being addressed that DeFi is trying to address and how it can uh, do a better job of it. 
Absolutely. And I, I do, I'm always open and transparent about this. Like I caveat it by, we are not there yet on sort of this roadmap to what I think the ultimate realization and vision of DeFi is. So I'll give you, you know, it's a bit of the hand-waving philosophical answer of where I think we can be and where we're, you know, making baby steps there. And, and candidly, I'm okay with the fact today, you know, it's a mix of between very, you know, crypto rich people who have made a lot of money off crypto who are using these DeFi services to start and a mix of people who are unbanked in, in emerging markets. But, you know, I don't think the parallel is that different from the early stages of the internet and like, you know, it was initially dismissed in the same way of like, you know, you know, you know, who's really using the internet, it's being used by criminals and for pornography. Uh, and, you know, at the early stages, it really wasn't being used to disseminate information to the, you know, the far reaching parts of the world that ultimately it did, right? And it, it was not, you know, so it's it's tough to envision fully the use case that we think for DeFi, but I could give you some some uh, some initial sound bites. So like, you know, if you think about the system of industrial finance or what we'll call like the system that existed for the last 200 years and the paradigm we sit in today, uh, there's two foundational problems. Uh, one is there's way too much disinter there's way too much intermediation, way too many toll takers across the road <laughs> uh, for, for you to sort of get the delivery of financial services. Um, so we think about you know things like insurance, where you know like what actually goes out to get to pay claims, you know, you know, only 65% of that is, you know, money that's collected for from premiums goes out to pay claims and insurance. The rest is for administration, reconciliation costs, uh, and just goes to corporate profits, right? Uh, and then you think about just like the current financial system hasn't served everyone else equally. So access is the is a huge problem, right? Like the broad set of access, like me and you are fortunate enough to sort of like, you know, get access to what I'll call sort of like top tier private wealth type financial services, you know, middle America does not have access to that. Forget of even globally, middle America today, you know, look, you know, 70% of people can't afford, you know, a thousand dollar emergency expense. So, you know, the traditional financial services system has failed a lot of people in, in many ways. And, and fintech is kind of the first step in sort of bridging that gap and, 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 uh, making things better. Um, but if you think about like a, a global financial services system that's built fully without middlemen, um, that really is how we sort of get to a place where we're, we're reaching sort of the 4 billion people are underbanked across the world, 2 billion people are completely unbanked. You know, DeFi, in, you know, you know, in my book really is sort of like what I think the future backbone of financial services will be or the future like back end and middle end, middleware will be of financial services. Um, and sort of obviously the front end experience will differ by like where you sit. Um, but foundationally, we're really trying to solve for like this, this, you know, high amount of intermediation and costs. Um, and the fact that like, there's not, uh, equality and an egalitarian, uh, amount of access for financial services across the world. And even in the U S yeah, you know, it's interesting. You bring that up. I've tweeted out this image of a Western Union uh, telegram money transfer from 1873, and it was for $300, and the cost was $9, so it was 3%. Remember, in 1873, they actually had to put $300 of coins and, and bills in a saddlebag and ride it to you on a horse. So you come to 2021, that same wire transfer is now 3% and still takes a couple of days to do, and it's like in 150 years, the traditional financial system has had really no improvement in its tech. It's had improvement in its technology, but to the end user, 
nothing has changed in terms of not passing along any of those efficiencies or any of those costs. And I can definitely see what you're talking about, that the uh, the, the current financial system is just not evolving and reaching down to, to people. But let's pivot. You, you talked about the four big sectors, DEXs, uh, borrowing, lending, synthetics, and stable coins. What do you, what's of those is the top of your radar right now. What yeah. do you think is what's got everybody's attention or maybe got your attention that we should drill down a little bit deeper on in those four areas? Yeah, absolutely. I'll give you one that I think we were a little bit forward thinking on. I think the market and the crypto market, it has a bit of a polarizing opinion on this uh, and it fits within the borrowing lending space. And it's one thing in which I feel really strongly about. Um, and it's this idea of real world assets coming on chain within the borrowing lending space. And um, you've seen a couple of proposals pass within the MakerDAO community to actually allow real world assets, things like real estate, things like freight invoices, things like, you know, uh, the future revenue revenue from Spotify artists uh, that are being streamed to come on chain. Um, and it's an area in which I feel, and here's the re reason why I feel so compelled about it. Um, people always give crypto a hard time and, and rightfully so for sort of these like insane mini cycles we go through. You know, we went through one in 2017, 18. We just went through one as well. And they're very important to adoption, but you know, it tends to be confined to sort of the crypto ecosystem itself. And like, why do we go through these these insane exacerbated cycles? It's really because we not yet have been tethered to sort of real world activity that occurs outside of sort of the fully digital world. Um, and I, I really do think we need to bring some of these real world assets um, on, on chain and, you know, it'll help with diversification to have uh, things like commercial real estate sitting inside of a MakerDAO vault um, and sort of backing as collateral rather than just Ethereum. Um, and like I said, it's polarizing. There's a lot of people who think like, let just crypto be crypto. Why do we have to sort of expand out the aperture into these real world assets? But, um, you know, MakerDAO is committed to it, Aave is committed to it. And we've backed, we were the, sort of the earliest backers of a, of a business called Centrifuge out of Berlin that's sort of a smart contracting platform that helps sort of what I'll call do, do mini securitizations of NFTs um, of real world assets and sort of collateralizes them and, and allows them to be securitized up. Um, so we feel, uh, you know, I, I feel that sort of the time is now for this to happen. The infrastructure has now been built by Centrifuge. You have a lot of sort of asset originators that are bringing really unique assets on chain. And it goes back to the point once again of like broadening access. So we we talk a lot about a fintech collective that you know the traditional 60/40 portfolio will not is not going to do you well in the 2020s and beyond, right? And sort of the access that you and I may have and other sort of you know high net worth individuals to sort of the broader set of art um, and and commercial real estate, like the average person gets no exposure to that. But when you think about like what is blockchain super good at, it's really amazing at sort of aggregating demand and fractionalizing supply of sort of these real world assets and 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 connecting with sort of is you know mass retail demand uh, and that previously is not possible without something like a blockchain backbone so i get really excited about the idea of of, of getting normal folks access to, to these type of uncorrelated assets and centrifuge and maker are, are really sort of the flag bearers of bringing this movement forward and um i think it's going to take a lot of people by surprise i think like we're going to enter a world where it's going to be you know many billions of real world assets entering in in a, a very short period of time and um, it's amazing. Like MakerDAO's cost of capital zero, if you think about them as sort of the, a decentralized Federal Reserve or the, or the 
Federal Reserve of DeFi um, and sort of the, you know, the the lifeblood of everything going on in DeFi, um, their cost capital zero. They've got to get the, the risk underwriting right, um, but I have heavy conviction that they will. So I think this idea of, of, of sort of borrowing lending, expanding uh, its mandate in, into real world assets is going to be huge for DeFi. So how, talking about getting it into the real world, how about stable coins? How do you see them fitting into the ecosystem of, of bringing DeFi to the regular people, if you will? Yeah, absolutely. So clearly, probably hear it from sort of my references to Maker. Like, I, I do believe in you know building something that is more decentralized and actually is backed by collateral versus uh, things like sovereign currencies, which we could have a long debate on what they're actually backed by. Um, so, like, listen, stable coins. It's not, it's not a long debate. They're backed by nothing. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I've gotten into conversations with folks like, it's backed by the power of the military, the U.S. military. I'm like, okay. So if the dollar yeah. goes down, we're going to deploy our, our drones and and uh, nuclear arsenal. Like, so anyway, yeah. but but I'm with you. I'm uh, we're we're uh, in in accordance on that. Um, so, you know, big believers in the in, in the power of stable coins and, and you referenced a few different use cases of, um, you know, thinking about remittances and sending money globally and the amount of toll takers, whether it's Western Union that, you know, takes three to 10 percent. Um, so this idea of programmable money and having a, you know, a, a representation of U.S. dollars is 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 a game changer, right? Um, having said that, and I'm sure this relates to the rest of the conversation you want to have around regulation, I think it's one of the first areas where uh, sort of the government and the Department of Treasury is going to be quite draconian about, um, because in their mind, like if a, you know, a, a, a you know, representation or a U.S. dollar is not issued by a banking institution itself or the Federal Reserve, then is it really a, a U.S. dollar, right? And a lot of this has to do with control and maintaining control of of, of sort of the, the 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 monetary base and the currency supply. Um, but yes, 100% a big believer in 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 stable coins, and you're seeing in the in the in the mammoth growth, and just like you're seeing more pairs being traded, not just against, against Bitcoin, but traded against stable coins, and stable coins have eclipsed sort of the hundred billion dollar mark. So uh, I think stable coins are, are definitively here to stay. How hard is it going to be to solve the decentralization in stable coins to stick with this for a second? We've yeah. seen many examples of people trying algo stable coins. <laughs> yeah. The success rate is not very good. Ask Mark Cuban, uh, <laughs> you know, as well. Uh, the obvious case is to do something like circle or tether with a trust. And then we can argue whether or not the trust is actually a trust. But what about getting to a fully decentralized uh, stablecoin. How hard do you think that's going to be for the space to find one or two or many? Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm very interested in the permutations of algo stablecoins we have seen from a bunch of different, like my game theory mindset and just and just everything around it. And and for a while, like they're, you know, for a while until they're fully backed, like they are built on pontonomics in, in some ways, right? Like they, you know, they are from the outset and that's, you know, that that's the honest truth. Um I, I think they're a very interesting thought experiment. I question all the time whether we fully need an algo stable coin like that. Um, I do think MakerDAO is our best bet at getting something that is fully decentralized. But, you know, you're hearing me reference it in the move from real old assets. Like what, what, what's sort of galvanizing Maker to 
bring real-world assets in, it's because Maker hasn't scaled at the same rate that sort of, you know, USDC and Tether have where they could just sort of, you know, take dollars, put it in a trust or a bank and print more digital representation of that thing. Uh, Maker actually needs collateral in its vault to do that, right? So, um, you know, Maker has had a scaling problem, right? It's not scaling at the same rate. I think real-world assets will bridge a bit of that gap, um, but we're sort of being limited by the amount of collateral in the system for something like Maker. Um, so I'd probably view it as the most true and sort of stable decentralized uh, stable coin that's out there. So clearly I have a, a bit of a bias um, from that perspective, but scaling is the huge question around something like MakerDAO. And, you know, I think some of these algo stable coins, the experimentation is going to continue. I think someone's going to get there. It's a lot of trial and error, but anytime it's the same thing, I think with cryptos, like anytime you put some of the smartest minds, um, whether that's devs and sort of like, game theory architects together, like you get some interesting outcomes, right? So I'm never want to be dismissive of sort of the brain power that's in the in sort of the ecosystem and figuring out how to scale some of these decentralized solutions. So we've kind of danced around it and the stablecoin discussion brings us right to the this discussion of regulation. Um, this is the biggest hang up I think that a lot of people in the traditional world have they look at the DeFi space, they say, yeah, it's interesting. And then they constantly get bombarded with FUD about, we're going to do this to Binance, and we're going to have a meeting about stable coins, and we're going to you know, require a banking license here, or, or we're going to require regulations there, and it makes them uneasy. So start with this uh, idea. What do you think regulators are thinking, and I'll give you two options here. Are they thinking we have to use regulations to protect ourselves because we like our, our little world that we have, or we need to help guide this DeFi, decent, uh, DeFi crypto space into the mainstream? We'll help you along with our experience. Uh, which way do you think they are in that spectrum, or do you think they're somewhere different than that? No, I think I think those two are probably accurate depictions. I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle of, of the two things you just outlined. Like it, I, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily as as black and white as one or the other. I think, and it also depends on what department, right? Right. Um, and I think, like when I think about everything going on from a you know sort of a regulation perspective. You know, my I come to the conclusion like this needs a whole new field of law. <laughs> and if you think about, you know, it depends on the department. Like crypto assets in general touch so many different departments, right? You got the OCC, you have the SEC, you have the Department of Treasury, you have the CFTC, you have the IRS. Um, Don't forget think, the Fed. And we have the, like, so how do you coordinate all these different bodies and fragmented organizations that each have their own, you know, reasons for existing and like what motivates the individual actors within each of these regulatory bodies? And then you have both federal and state level regulations, right? Um, so, you know, you know, here's what I think, you know, I think the regulators are much smarter than 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 people in crypto give them credit for. And you you see it right. Look at the publications the St. Louis Fed put out like that's one of the most comprehensive reports on DeFi that's out there. Um, and, you know, Brian Brooks has, you know, spent a fair amount of time in the OCC, you know, before, you know, before that at Coinbase and then at Binance. And um, like, I think he's you, you, you can't underestimate sort of the work that he did in sort of self-driving banks and, you know, getting uh, the OCC to say banks could hold these you know, like new age digital things um, on behalf of consumers. Like those are huge steps forward, first of all. Um, and their understanding is deeper than I think, once again, most most people give them credit for. Um, I think it's going to be a push and pull. 
Um, I think the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen and folks that come from a much different generation, maybe they don't fully understand as part of it. And two, they're going to be reluctant to give sort of, you know, full control of a monetary base and a new money architecture uh, into a decentralized format. But here's what I think, and I think you subscribe to this as well, (laughs) is that consumer choice and sovereignty is going to win at the end of the day. Like, look at every other industry from hotels uh, uh, with Hotels.com and taxis with Uber. Like, consumer choice is going to win at the end of the day. And and, um, I think it's a really tough time to be in sort of a, a sort of position of power and be cracking down on crypto in the developed markets because, you know, crypto is populism right now. Um, and I don't think a lot of these politicians specifically want to be on the wrong side of history of that. And there's just such a wave and momentum around this whole crypto movement. And you saw it with GameStop and, you know, like it's tough, right? Like at the end of the day, they're kept empowered by votes. Um, so I think, you know, it'll take time. Like, I don't think we're going to get a huge, amazing comprehensive framework that recognizes that this thing needs to be looked at differently and it's not black and white security or not, um, or exchange or not. Like these things in DeFi, you know, are across a continuum and like a very nuanced approach is needed and we're gonna have to coordinate a lot of people to get there. Um, but I have faith that just given the fact we're opening up access and, and lowering costs at the end of the day, like regulators should be embracing that. And, and, you know, as well as I know, like you, you commit, some, you, you commit fraud or something else and you're doing it in, in crypto, like, uh, and you're doing it in Bitcoin, like it's traceable. So like, you know, using chain analysis and all these different, uh, mechanisms, like regulators should love crypto. It's better than tracking cash. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. And you talked about consumer choice. Let's remind everybody, this is a global market. This is not just a U.S. market. And that there are a lot of people that are unbanked or very interested in this space in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa, and in the Middle East. And one of the things when we talk about regulators that I found highly disappointing is we know the story about El Salvador, you know, with their adoption of Bitcoin, and they asked the World Bank, to come in and help them. And El Salvador did point out 70% of their population is unbanked. And most of their money comes from remittances from foreign countries. That's the United States. And they were looking at, you know, using some kind of a a, a crypto uh, payment rail system, either through uh, Bitcoin, which is what they have now, maybe somewhere else. And they said, World Bank, come in here and help us. And World Bank said, no, that's all the stuff uh, that's dirty energy and it's all drug dealers. We're not going to help you at all with it. And it was just a terrible answer, I thought. But tell us about the rest of the world. I mean, we're, we're talking about the SEC, the IRS, the Fed, uh, the OCC getting together and talking about regulations. Do they do, do people in Asia, Middle East, Latin America and Africa care about what we think? Are they going to go ahead without us? Are they going to or do they need us or where do we fit into the bigger hole in this thing? Yeah, I, I've heard you reference this as well on some on some of your content, and I agree with it. I think I think in some ways we may get leapfrogged. <laughs> um, right. I think we like you know a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have what I'll call technical debt or regulatory debt of having this immense system and that was built in industrial era to sort of like change. Um, so you've got places where like this sort of future open 
permissionless uh, composable architecture can be, you know, used to leapfrog. Um, so, you know, you re- you kind of referenced El Salvador, like there's a bunch of other places where uh, sort of, you know, bright spots of crypto activity in, in sort of the emerging world. The Philippines is one where like latest estimation is like 15% of citizens are using some form of a digital wallet to sort of pay for utility bills and uh, send money to others. Um, and where these, you know, like once again, similar statistics to El Salvador were like over half the population is unbanked, right? So like this is a much better infrastructure to bank those individuals, right? Or, you know, a bank with operational overhead and, and branches can't service these people. They're not profitable, but on a sort of crypto architecture, they are. Um, so, you know, there's places like Colombia as well, which I find really intriguing. I sit on the board of a business called Minka, which is a real-time payments company in Colombia that uses a blockchain uh, backbone uh, to move money uh, between banks. So think about, you know, Zelle here, uh, the ability to send money from Chase into Bank of America. It's the same concept, but they've built the architecture on blockchain. Um, and guess what? They have a real-time ACH settlement before we do in the U.S. <laughs> we still are not there yet, and Columbia is there. Um, so, yes, I think I think it's a fine line, and the regulators have to have to recognize like we're at risk of falling behind um, some of these other uh, other parts of the world that have come to embrace uh, sort of crypto by by necessity, right? It's because so many of these folks are are under and uh, underbanked, but. You know, it's still too challenging to be a small business or or a, a poor individual across so many parts of the world. And we're not there yet, right? A lot of the infrastructure has just been built. Um, but here's one other use case I think a lot about for, you know, something like UMA, and it dates me back to sort of the white paper, and we first made the investment in universal market access. Um, you go to a place like Southeast Asia or China, where there's such tight capital controls, you know, they cannot invest, you know, into the US stock market, into an S&P 500 index. But when you think about a synthetic, uh, synthetically composed index that's made on something like UMA with no investment minimum, right? Like where those people in China can invest without being, you know, censored out uh, of, of, of sort of the ownership and actually maintain sovereignty over their ownership in the S&P 500. Um, so I, I find that to be really intriguing, um, is getting a broader set of individuals globally access, once again, to higher performing assets, um, like, like you know, the U.S. stock market. You know, and I, I completely agree with that. And you can even draw that into domestically, if we were to call them all the way back domestically and look at the traditional capital markets and tokenomics is maybe opening up more efficiencies for a company that really they can issue debt and they can issue various forms of debt. They can issue preferred stock. They can issue common stock uh, as well. But if you had within your capital structure, an entire level of, of tokens as well too, and these tokens are very flexible. One of the arguments that people have made is that why has Apple and Tesla been such powerhouse companies over the last couple of years that they've got a network effect that the people that use those products also own those companies. And so they're natural salesmen for those companies. What about a Dollar Tree and a McDonald's? Most of the people that go to a Dollar Tree or McDonald's usually don't own the stock, but if you had a token that you can give them, a low dollar token to give them a discount at some of those places and they can share in the upside of the company, you can turn them into bigger advocates for those companies. Do you see that disrupting or coming to our capital markets in the West and especially the United States that we could start rethinking the whole stock bond, maybe having tokens in that capital structure as well too? 
A hundred percent. This idea of the way capital formation occurs today, it, it's going to change. It already is changing. And you reference it, the power, like what's the power of Web 3.0 and DeFi? Like um, this infrastructure for the first time is like, you know, community own, built, owned and operated. And that that is like foundationally so game changing for every, like for every, you know, vector of industry, not just financial services. And like what like you, you you see with like the Link Marines and the, the owners of Chainlink, like they are staunch, right? Like you own Link, you're not selling. Um, and, you know, to your point of like, you know, imagine if to your, like, you know, Vitalik referenced this as well. I think it's a, a, an interesting analogy is like imagine each time, like you said, you bought a MacBook, you got like a, you know, small, you know, share of equities, you know, equity in Apple, the company, um, like you are going to be a huge proponent, especially if you're in there early. And, and that's what you're seeing with sort of these, uh, ecosystems that are, you know, uh, specific to, to sort of web 3.0 and, 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 and the internet, um, like the, these communities, like people, people own the tokens, people use the products and people become the biggest advocates of the infrastructure. Um, so I think it's a really powerful incentive mechanism. Um, you know, the, you know, this idea of yield farming, which, you know, is, you know, brought to market in DeFi summer by compound uh, and, and sort of giving a native token uh, in the financial network. Like it, it, there's been different forms, like, like loyalty points for credit cards, like not so yeah. dissimilar, right? Like there, there's corollaries in traditional markets. And I think what people are realizing is like the power, like there's true power behind tokenomics. Um, and I think you're going to see sort of, you know, traditional companies recognize that and change capital formation to be reflective of sort of this new, this, this new world we live in. One of the things I think that traditional financial people have a hard time getting their arms around or even their head around is decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs in the governance of how that they work. And you referenced it earlier with improvement proposals and stuff. How do you explain this to a traditional equity investor? And uh, how do you get them to not think that you've lost your mind if you think that that's a structure to, to yeah. actually, it makes a lot of sense to have it as a structure like that. Yeah, DAOs, there's a whole school around just DAOs themselves. And it's such an ongoing uh, fluid conversation about about these, about like what DAOs are, how do we classify them? How do they avail themselves of traditional courts if necessary? But once again, I, th I think the I think the cat's out of the like like it is with crypto. I think the cat's out of the bag on this on this DAO thing. Um, like decentralized autonomous organizations are a thing, and they're and they're not going away. Um, and you know, I think probably now we've got like what like to to start. You know, before COVID, maybe we had a couple thousand members of DAOs um, across the world. We're probably like 100, 200,000 now. I think we're easily on the path to, to many millions. Um, you know, it's, it's a flat hierarchy and that's what's amazing. And a lot of these, what's amazing is like you've got in some ways like very known characters um, like VCs interacting with people who are like anonymous or pseudo anonymous. Um, so you're kind of merging these, these two weird worlds. Um, but you know, like DAOs have proven themselves to be really effective governance tools, um, especially when people are incentivized correctly and they tend to be more egalitarian. Um, so, you know, the, the, this idea of a, of a DAO and DAOs continue to have more power globally, I, I think that's continue to be a thing as like Web 3.0 infrastructure becomes more powerful and becomes, you know, begins to supplant a lot of um, 
Web 2.0 and similarly DeFi begins to supplant more of of, of CeFi. Um, DAOs are going to continue to gain power, and like how like how we recognize them is going to be really important. And I really give kudos to places like Wyoming for for pushing the agenda and conversation forward. Um, for rec- beginning to recognize DAOs is just a, a huge step forward. Um, and then you get in some real nuances. And Laura Shin had an amazing podcast that that featured Aaron Wright recently, which is like. You know, is an interest in a DAO of security may, may or may not be like we also need more clarity around this. We're looking to like um, pass rulings that are many decades old that didn't contemplate anything that looked and felt like an organization that was native to the Internet. Um, so, you know, how we characterize these things uh, is going to be important and like ha- how we uh, work with DAOs. Like you're going to see you're, you're seeing partnerships uh, come between DAOs the way you'd see partnerships between between corporations. You're going to see partnerships between DAOs and traditional uh, corporations. So it's 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 really unique. Um, it's kind of a little bit scary, um, a little bit dystopian in some ways. But like I said, I don't I don't think they're going away. Yeah, you you kind of you hinted at it there a little bit with uh, the regulation that the regulatory framework, whether we're talking about antitrust or anything else, is really pounding a square peg into a round hole. Those were written for a different type of era and a different type of way capital markets work than now. And that instead of trying to force the crypto DeFi world into those old regulations, uh, you're 100% with uh, Wyoming, you know, starting to rethink it from scratch and start up with a whole new set of regulations. And you also hinted at, you know, partnerships. Uh, we talked about where the regulators are. What about traditional finance? What does the what do the banks think about the lending and borrowing protocols? What does the New York Stock Exchange think about Uniswap? Just to throw out some generalized examples, yeah. Yeah. Uh, are they are they embracing these ideas? Are they fearful of these ideas? Where do you think most traditional finance falls with some of these stuff? Yeah. So here, I I think you know if you really I, I think on the surface you know. The, the answer is very dismissive, but I know once again, like the, the answer tends to be more nuanced than that. If you really go to the most thoughtful people within these organizations, within financial institutions, they recognize how disruptive this technology is, right? Like without a doubt. Um, the reason they are dismissive is because the rules that they've had to adhere to, it seemingly something like a Uniswap, which doesn't have KYC AML implemented, like you know, it doesn't feel like they're playing by the same rules. And they know that institutional pockets of capital, if it's going to come into these systems, like need to have know your customer and anti-money laundering for them to participate. And it's, it's a lot of the reasons why we have seen a hesitation or reluctance from larger scale players coming in to buy these uh, DeFi tokens or participate in these ecosystems. So they're paying attention. They know how disruptive it is. They can't yet play, um, you know, because of, you know, sort of the current regulatory overhang that they have. Um, but, you know, you're, you're seeing them experiment. I think you're going to see KYC AML versions of everything from, uh, you know, Ave and the borrowing lending side to Uniswap where, you know, uh, on, on the deck side where like all market participants are going to be KYC AML. Like someone is going to take a run of that. I think you're going to see, you know, versions, alternative systems that are fully KYC AML. Um, do I think they are going to gain as much traction as we've seen in DeFi? Probably not. Do I think they win that win out in the end of the day? Also, probably not. Um, but you know, they, you know, the other, the other reason why a lot of these sort of financial institutions and banks are dismissive and, and, you know, to extend it's right is like, 
you know, the banking system has been stress tested over many centuries, right? Um, the speed of innovation here is incredible. It's undeniable. And the metrics are unforgeable. But, you know, like we haven't been like DeFi has only really been a thing for a couple of years. Like we've been through a couple stress tests, like, you know, uh, the March drop, you know, in COVID where we dropped 50% in one day, that stressed the maker system, right? Like, you know, wound up with some, uh, uh, community losses, um, you know, the May sell-off in three days where we sold off 60%, that was a stress test. Um, but like, you know, it, it's nascent technology. Like this stuff has not been through many decades, right? So when a lot of the banks look at it, they're like, hmm, uh, you know, we'll take it seriously when it's been through a couple of de decades. But it, it's the classic innovators dilemma too. Like if you think about DeFi and who they're servicing, we reference it a couple of times. It's like the very crypto rich who have different needs and people who are unbanked or not being served by them anyway. So they're kind of like, ah, who are they really appealing to? These aren't our customers anyway. And the, the fallacy in that, as you know, is that's where they'll start. And then eventually it'll come for their customers, right? That's the classic innovators dilemma. So um, exactly. I think they're going to, I think they're going to fall. They're going to, they're going to fall victim to it. They're paying attention, but most likely they will fall victim to, to, to that fallacy and thinking. So how about how about closer to what you guys do? How about the the, the cutting edge fintech firms? I'm curious, like, to just to throw out again a generalized example for the audience, like what does a Stripe think about stable coins yeah. or a central bank digital currency? They've got a great business going, and does that disrupt them, or are they embracing that? Where do you think when you get to these cutting edge fintech companies, how are they viewing the DeFi yeah. and crypto world? Yeah, so. It's a great, it's an, it's an amazing question. Um, and if you think about like a lot of the innovation that's happening in fintech um, to take the very skeptical, the, the, the skeptics view is like, oh, we're really, fintech is really just innovated at the application and front end and delivering better services. But like, it's really built on stale old back end because it has to adhere to the current system. Um, so I think a lot of them, Stripe, MasterCard and the rest who are really innovative companies look at this and say, this is probably better backend infrastructure for us to run parts of our organization on. Um, so they look to it with, with promise, um, I think, rather than like full disruptive capability to their business model. Like, is it disruptive in some ways? Obviously, if, if you know, uh, stable coins fully, you know, you know, come on and it's direct peer to peer payments and there's no intermediation, like, sure, it could be disruptive, someone like Stripe, but they're still going to be middleware. They're still going to be service providers. Um, do I think they're going to extract as much value as they do in the current, you know, paradigm? No, but there's definitely, you know, room for application layer and sort of the customer service layer. And that's what Stripe and people like MasterCard and, and Square are really good at right is like sort of like creating great customer experiences and that's kind of what DeFi historically hasn't been amazing at uh, like we get a lot of criticism for the ui ux and these companies have built amazing products that can that create delightful experiences for customers so when i think about the most forward-thinking fintech companies i think they look at it with opportunity to sort of you know reach a broader set of customers with you know putting their magic on top of a, a DeFi backbone yeah, I, I completely agree. I, th I don't think that we'll ever get to a world that everybody's basically got their own wallet and their own private keys. There will be some people that will want that handholding, or maybe they'll want that third party involved in the process. Maybe even you or me might want some assets or some ideas involved with a third party holding a specific private key where other assets that we have, we only hold our private keys as well too. So there will be a mixture of that. And so definitely uh, you could see that. But 
as we come up here towards the end, the one other thing that's kind of big in this space we haven't really touched upon is central bank digital currencies. Uh, you mentioned stable coins as being an important part of the ecosystem. Do you see that as a disruption to the stable coin system? Do you see that yeah. as a benefit or a detraction for the entire DeFi crypto space in general? Yeah. I have a pretty different opinion on this, actually. Um, I don't think it's ever going to happen. <laughs> uh, I don't think a CBDC is it's ever It's not that happen. different. I'm with you on that. I've, okay. I've called it the ultimate shitcoin, but that's yeah. that's a different subject. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's um, like you, you, if you think about what the Fed is, right? Like imagine having a, a direct you know, account with the Fed, right? Where like you got your you know money from PPP, uh, from the CARES Act, directly from the Fed. Um, like every single commercial banking institution would have been disrupted by that innovation, right? It's so like the lobbying efforts and, and they go hand in hand, the commercial banking industry with the Fed, um, with the Fed window and everything that, you know, the whole system is built on like, you only have access to the Fed window if you're a bank and you only have access to the Fed wire if you're a bank. I can't imagine the, pu the pushback is going to be crazy um, from the commercial banks um, for something like a CBDC. I think it's just overlooked that people just, you know, the Fed talks about a lot because they see China doing it. But China is a very, I mean, the private and public sector emerge in a way that it's not in the U.S. Um, so I think the construct of of China allows for a CBDC in a way that the U.S. is is not going to get to. Um, and I just don't see, like, as long as the U.S. is a reserve currency, once again, innovator's dilemma, I just don't think the U.S. is going to disrupt itself where everything, like, world, you know, world commodities, everything is being priced in the U.S. Let's rush to get the CBDC thing out. So I think if it happens, like, you know, Powell and everyone is, you know, dragged into it because they have to and are being forced, you know, you know, forced to do it. I don't think they're raising their hand and are moving this initiative actually forward. Uh, I, that's I, I think we hold a different viewpoint the rest of the world on this because I think people think it's going to move and going to happen. And but I completely agree. Don't forget, you know, that the Fed is a regulator. Yeah. of the banking system and the banking system has got a good point that you are a regulator and you're going to be a competitor at the same time you know the umpire doesn't get to stand in the batter's box <laughs> he stands behind the catcher and calls balls and strikes and so you can't do both uh, at the same time so I, I agree with you i don't think that the problem that central banks are having with cbdc's is technology it's policy they 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 see they see the idea, but they just don't know how they're supposed to implement it in a way that it would be useful or anything else. So this has been an amazing hour that we've talked about the whole tradfi, defi world and stuff like that. Let me give you a, a moment here to give some um, parting big picture thoughts. Where do you think we might be in five or ten or fifteen yeah. years in this space? And let's just leave off, you know what the tokens have done in the last week or month or quarter yeah. and stuff like that. Well, bigger picture, how do you think our lives are going to be different, you know, yeah. in the year 2030 or something like that? Yeah, it's a amazing question. Um, so I, I, I view this as every like sitting in venture for the last six years and covering fintech. It feels like all the pieces have been generally evolutionary. This is the first like generational paradigm shift I've seen. Um, and I think it's going to, you know, basically disseminate in so many pieces of our life we can't really understand from the tokenization of everything to sort of having a wallet where you're owning all your assets both you know digitally native and 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 traditional securities um i think like i don't think it's a reach to say like the smart contract wallet or sort of a digital wallet will be as ubiquitous as email is today 
um, and everyone's going to have one. Um, everyone's going to be interacting with digital assets in in the future. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think people the the attention has been called to this space given the confluence of sort of macro and the money printing and everything else. But I think that's sort of distracting from sort of the 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 big picture and like sort of where we ha- we're headed, like the the foundational technology shifts here uh, towards sovereignty and ownership. Um, it's going to take on continued importance. Like this this push and pull between you know centralization and decentralization is going to keep on happening, um, and people are going to come to really appreciate that this alternative financial system and digital assets exist um and we're, we're lucky to be sort of sitting in this place um uh, of humanity because you know for hundreds of years like you live somewhere like there was no alternative like you lived in a sovereign country and that that was it if if if, if things weren't you're going away you were stuck um so i think this is going to open up so many alternatives um uh, for individuals globally that it just gives me such a such a great amount of excitement and i i think we're we're so early in this um well we're so we're so early right let's like look at the top you know, 10 protocols are referenced in DeFi. They command only 20 billion in total network valuation. Look at global financial services, equity capitals in the tens of trillions, right? We're, we're so early. Um, so I don't think all the potential innovation we could really even contemplate today, um, but I, I think we're we're positioned quite, quite nicely uh, on, on a go forward basis. And it, I'm just excited by it. I am too. And I really do look forward to watching this. As I said to you, uh, I've been in the macro space for 30 years, and this is far and away the most interesting thing that I've seen, you know, in the big picture come along. Sean, it's been a great conversation. Thanks for your time. Uh, look, really enjoyed it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for having me. Chat soon. Thank you. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com.